Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Almost live from the trenches of New York City, here are your middle aged warriors, Chris Samino and Rick Summers. Oh my goodness, I can't believe we're up and running again. Show 17. Welcome to Middle Age Warriors. I'm Rick Summers. I'm Chris Cimino, and it's uh, nice to be back for show number 17, Rick. Basically, what alternative do we have? Well, the good thing about this podcast that I like is we don't have to be invited. We just invite ourselves, and we get to be there. So this <laughs> That's true. You know, Chris, it's funny, because I was thinking about this show and uh, how it originally came to thought and it really evolved um, around you and I sitting outside at Lincoln Center here in New York City where we both are. Uh, A couple of years ago we would talk about our lives and we were talking about things and transformations that we were going through and we were both pretty well entrenched in our careers at that point and working pretty regularly for a really long time. And we started talking about things that mattered to us as we were getting a little bit older And now we are a little bit older. And now a year later, uh, looking back, neither one of us is working full time. And life has changed. And some of the transformations that we wanted to talk about on the show, where we've reached out to other people to tell us their stories. And I thought to myself, with you coming up on an anniversary now in early July of now being off the air in New York television for a year, um, I always wanted to talk to you about your transformation, and I thought it might be good, good fodder for this show. So, right. first of all, congratulations <laughs> on being a year out. Yeah, being a year out, uh, and you know, July second will be one year. That was my last day at WNBC. The bigger challenge, I think, the first few months were fine. Uh, I didn't plan on a pandemic in this first year of, of uh, being out of work and then trying to find work. That's always a, a bigger challenge. But this is all an evolution. This is all a process. It doesn't always, what I have learned is about planning and a plan that in general plan on there not being a plan <laughs> because it always ends up going somewhere in a different direction. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think what I've learned is to be a little more patient and flexible and sort of let things be, you know, as a, there was a group way back in the 60s and early 70s said, let it be. Yeah, I, I've learned to allow that to happen a little bit more. So I have become a, a more patient person. I'm not all the way there, though. Uh, there are a lot of days where I feel anxious. I don't know what's coming next. And that could still be a little scary. It's just not as scary at this age and having lived this much life, as, as you well know. Do you feel like deep in the root of you, that no matter what happens, you're going to be okay? Pretty much. I think, you know, going back even further, uh, and I haven't really talked in depth about the process of uh, my wife getting sick and going through that and then losing her. And, you know, she left the planet at an early age, 54 years old. And I learned a lot from that process. And there was actually, you know, it sounds strange, but now I feel like there was a gift that also came out of all of that pain. And that gift was to appreciate life differently and to really, it's cliche-ish. Every day's a gift and I'm gonna be okay as long as I'm here and we have a fighting chance on each and every day. 
you know, that is the gift. The challenge is to appreciate it and don't push days aside so quickly anymore. That I certainly don't do. You know, it's interesting because that's a great point. And really, um, you and I have been friends for a long time, um, or at least colleagues. Yeah. And I developed more of a friendship with you going through what you had to go through as a caretaker for Nancy, who was very, very sick with cancer and everything that you had to deal with and going through that, having experienced it in other facets of my life, not having lost a wife uh, to cancer, but having lost my mom to cancer and having gone through it, it certainly rang true the, the words you were saying and, and the, the feelings that you were sharing with me uh, told me a lot about who you were and spoke to me as somebody who was getting older and dealing with my own limitations because of my chronic illness and stuff. So it's interesting because the reason I bring that up is going through this pandemic has taught us, it seems to me, some of the same lessons mm -hmm. um, about, was it the John Lennon that once said that life is what happens when you're making other plans? Uh -huh. Exactly. And so true. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, so going through, I mean, you really downshifted quickly too, and I want to talk to you about that because you were you were running fast track for high speed, high octane for a really long time. How did that all happen? Well, I mean, first of all, I want to mention that in those conversations that we used to have lunchtime, the gift that you gave me was the feeling of being able to be totally honest about what I was feeling and going through that process. The patient, the ill person, the person who's dying is obviously the focus, but the people who are taking care of those people or dealing with that issue every day who are going to be left back here, there's a lot of challenges and there are a lot of emotions that you go through. You go through being angry. You go through being a little selfish yourself. Then you go through being so sad for the other person and, and you don't even know what to do because you really can't change the situation. And I think the ability to speak to you about all of those feelings honestly was the great gift of our friendship. And I think that's when our friendship went to another level because anybody listening out there, if you have a friend who no matter what you tell them, they listen, they don't judge. They don't judge. You may give advice, and you did, but you didn't judge. They were not, the, the things you would tell me were not judgmental of what I was feeling. You were allowing me to feel what I wanted to feel. And that's a very, very important thing. It sounds so simple, but apparently it's not real easy to give because there are a lot of people, well-intended people, good friends, but they always feel like they have to jump in and try to fix it. I didn't need you to fix it. I needed you to listen and to at least make me feel like I'm not losing my freaking mind here and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be okay. And you did that uh, tenfold. And that, for that, I will always be grateful. So I just wanted to let the public know about that. Now, what was your question, Rick? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I... <laughs> uh, no, I, I Thank guess you. That's the... very sweet of you to say. And uh... No, you were, you were talking about uh, then moving forward. And right. it's interesting because I think at the same time, all of that was happening leading up to where my wife got sick. My dad got sick and died of cancer. My son had a bout with cancer. And I was going through my own midlife crisis of wondering, what am I doing? Is this really where I want to be at this point in my life? So in a weird way, and to be perfectly honest, 
I think I was somehow emotionally preparing myself to maybe be alone and to figure things out because I had never in my life lived alone. I you know, was born and raised in a home. I had a family. I got married. I lived with a wife. I never went away to college. I never lived alone. And I think I, w- I wanted to challenge myself to that. I sure as hell didn't want it to come about by losing my wife. But I think somewhere in that process, it allowed me when I did lose her and I went through that whole process to maybe then say, hey, seize the day, seize the moment. Now's the time. Remember those stupid, crazy thoughts you had during your midlife crisis? You are now free to do that, to move forward, to challenge yourself, to experience certain things in life maybe before you didn't think you would. And I think that's what accelerated the the process of traveling. Hey, look, July 2nd was my last day at NBC. July 3rd, I was on a plane to South Africa. (laughs) So pretty cool. uh, And it, it was a great ride in that way. Well, and I, I think it's really important to be able to be a survivor and go through what you went through to have a good team to be able to lean on. I'm not saying, as you said so eloquently before, not solving the problem, but just being there and hearing the problem. I think about growing up in a household where if I had a problem and I would announce it, uh, right away, everybody felt the need to solve it. And, and that was really defeatist because it didn't allow me to figure out how to solve it myself. It was good to know that I was loved and it was good to know that there were people there that could lend a hand and allow me to rest on their shoulder if need be. But going through what you went through in losing uh, Nancy first, and that is now how many years ago? Four? That was four years ago, May 21st, yeah. Oh my goodness and the time just zips by and then you know the other thing is while that was a death and we understand or we we claim to understand the process of death where we we wake and we mourn and then we bury and we mourn and we grieve you go through the same things with your career and the routines and this is Part of, I mean, so this is a lot of loss that you've dealt with over the last few years. And I mean, basically, really doing this show for both of us, I think, is a great way to be able to share uh, what it's like being middle-aged guys right. and dealing with losses and dealing with transition and dealing with getting reinvigorated and, and moving forward. Yeah, I think typically... I don't care who you are, it's very difficult to get through middle age, meaning 40s, 50s, and perhaps, you know, then going into your 60s as well, to come out of this unscathed. The reality is you're, you're either going to, you know, lose some parents, lose some friends, lose your spouse, lose your other half, uh, lose your job, maybe more than once. Uh, so it, it's a time that we're all, you know, going to see some kind of forced transition. I don't think most people decide to, to get fired. They don't decide to lose their spouse. Although, you know, divorce can, will, will do that. But that's a painful process as well. Uh, any relationship, anything that is so woven into our day-to-day life that gets ripped away from us, I don't care how it's done, is a painful process. But it has to truly be turned into a learning process. And I think over the years, as I got older, and that is one of the advantages, you see more of other people's lives. You read more about things and 
you feel differently as you evolve as a human being on this planet and you see pain and you feel pain and you recover from pain and you learn that it's not forever. And it's to me, I don't have, you know, I don't have time to wallow too much. People look at what I did and they'll think, wow, he recovered awfully fast from his wife passing on and look at him, he's happy now. And I am happy, but nobody saw the countless nights of crying myself to sleep. And I'm not saying this stuff for, to, for a pity potty, but what I'm saying is for people who are suffering and dealing with that, sometimes I think we all wanna put on a good face for everybody to see. I'm okay, don't worry about me, I got this, I got this, I got this. But don't suffer in silence either. I think you need to continue to, to, to cry it through, need to talk to friends, need to have some good sound friends. And man, let me tell you something. If anything saved me and healed me faster, it was the circle of friends. You obviously a big part of that. I had so many other friends that have been so supportive of me. I would say, no, but I did this and I felt this way. And they were like, it's okay, Chris, that's normal. And that meant, that's priceless. That meant so much to me in the healing process. You know, it's interesting because uh, I'm big on analogies, as you well know, my barnacle <laughs> analogy, which is barnacles attaching themselves to a side of a boat. And I would call those barnacles secrets in a marriage. And what would happen is the barnacles would eventually pull the hull of the ship underwater and then you'd have water rushing in and it was too late to save the marriage. But uh, the other analogy I was thinking about is going through a loss and going through pain. It's a lot like being, uh, well, not necessarily a kid, but think about all the times you ever scraped yourself or cut yourself as a kid. The first thing you have to do is bleed, clean it out, then put some uh, bacitracin or whatever it was on it, and then cover it over and let it heal. And that's basically what a lot of our life is, is, is a healing process that is very difficult for us because we're impetuous and we're impatient. And we all think that uh, the clock is moving faster than it is. Though, as we sit here in July of 2020, I will tell you, <laughs> it does feel like it's moving awfully quickly, but uh, it's, it's a process. And the other part is, and you and I uh, share this love of sports and we were trying to apply some of what we feel as what it must be like to be an athlete who uh, is living his or her life and going through exactly what we've gone through, which is personal uh, triage, and then trying to deal with their career and their pressures of, of being a baseball player, being a hockey player, being a basketball player. I think with uh, athletes, the issue really becomes and I think for us in our careers, we had a little taste of it, but I think with an athlete from the time that they are basically four, five, six years old, in many cases, they are pretty much driven to be professional athletes. That's what they do day in, day out. That's really their focus. And when the career ends, think about it. They've been identifying themselves for the most part as some elite athlete for so many years of their life. And they, that would, to me, seems even more of a scramble to figure out, well, now what? Now what do I do? Who am I? I mean, television can do that to you. Radio can do that to you. We were both in that field. But I think I always sort of had one foot touching and out the door a little bit to some other things to discover about myself. 
so that at this point, while my television career is either put on pause or perhaps ended, I'm not that lost. There's plenty of things I know I want to and can still do. I don't know how you feel about that. I, first of all, I totally agree with you. I think you're a wonderful chef. I think you love wines. You love to travel. Your interests are just exploding. And I think if anything, uh, this time since you left your career kind of behind has afforded you the opportunity to do some things that you probably wouldn't have been able to do had you been working full time. Um, it's really interesting. And I know that we had uh, former baseball player John Franco on with us a couple of weeks ago, who has done pretty much the same kind of things. He's He's gone to Italy every summer, or it seems that way uh, from the Facebook photos that I seem to see. <laughs> you know, and uh, it's really about reinventing yourself. And I think about the interview that you and I did with Cheryl Benton in The Three Tomatoes, and we talked about uh, the similarities and the disparities between men and women because her website, their website, The Three Tomatoes, is, is built for women of a certain age. And essentially, you and I are that certain age. We're on the other side of the ledger, though. That being said, for men, uh, let's be honest, we get aged out, too, of positions and things, depending upon what our careers are. Certainly athletes do. And, you know, perhaps that was even part of the reason behind what's happened to me. I don't, I don't know. If I was 30-something, I might already have a job uh, in, in L.A. or Chicago or in New York somewhere. But maybe at 59, that's why I don't have a job. I don't know. Um, but I can't let that be part of my concern in moving forward. But I think for men, you know, part of it is we're, we're raised to be hunters and gatherers and providers. And when suddenly there's no income and you don't have a job, there's a little bit of a hit to your ego and your masculinity to a degree. And that's been a little bit of a challenge for me. I think that's been the toughest thing I realized that I was earning something since I was like 19, 18 years old. I mean, even uh -huh. before that. And to suddenly not be in that position, it's a, that's the part that I sometimes will wake up with anxiety. Well, how am I going to figure this out? What's going to be the next source, you know, for income? Um, so it is kind of a weird feeling. I'm not, trust me, I'm not on the pity potty again. I'm not starving. But I mean the sense of, I'm a man. I work, I generate <laughs> food, and I, you know, I protect my cave. Losing some of that, uh, it's a little bit of an adjustment for me. It is. And let me just interject for a second and remind you that you're listening to Chris Cimino and Rick Summers. We're your middle-aged warriors, and this is the Believe Podcast Network. Uh, Chris is our special guest this week. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that, but I see it's happening. Mm -hmm. I'm, on, I'm on the couch this week. Okay. Yes, you're on the couch. And as, as every good therapist will do it at about 45 minutes, he'll look at his or her, she'll look at her watch yeah, and say, <laughs> you know what, Chris, I'm sorry, we'll have to continue this next week. Yeah. But um, we still you have know, a little bit of time left. I had an odd dream last night, hot dogs chasing donuts at the Holland Tunnel. Is that Freudian at all? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me talk to you, my friend. <laughs> yes, what is wrong with you? But uh, in terms of, you know, this being the one-year anniversary as well, uh, you know, and this is one of the things I have to be honest that I truly don't miss getting up at the crack of ass every morning. Uh, it, it literally, it literally was, I was getting up at two, two fifteen, 
that is really not a healthy thing to be doing for years and years. And I did it for many, many years. And even before NBC New York, I worked mornings at uh, the NBC station in Cincinnati. I worked mornings at the ABC station in Scranton. Uh, for the most part, I was stuck in mornings. I did some evening stints here and there, but it was mostly early mornings. And that just really takes a toll on you. And you know, Rick, that because you kind of did the same thing, it really changes your personality when you get trapped in that sleep deprivation cycle. I used to say when I would do morning radio that, I mean, there was something magical about being done at 10 a.m., you know. <laughs> The day is mine. Now I can do it. Except now you were so tired because you've been up for eight or nine hours already that you were too tired to do anything. And I always used to say, doing mornings will shave years off the end of my life. I know it will. Yeah. It's got to because it is totally the opposite of what we were taught when we were young, which is go to sleep at a decent hour, get up at a decent hour and then work your normal daylight hours. And of course, with the pandemic, and now people working from home 24 hours a day, uh, it'll be interesting to see how society comes back. But man, I gotta tell you, I don't know how you did mornings as long as you did. Not to mention, I did morning radio, so I could go in and I could look like crap. <laughs> you did right. morning TV, you had to go in and you had to be well shaved, nicely kept and put together. And I don't know how you did that. Yeah, I mean, that, really that, that clearly was the challenge. So I guess basically I should thank my uh, former general manager for, for letting me go because he saved my life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good way to look at it. <laughs> I, never, I never realized that, but see, now I feel good about that. No, glass but, half uh, empty or glass half full, right? You know. but, but you're absolutely right. And I just found that it really was changing my personality. And in going through the process for two, three years of my wife being sick and in and out of hospitals and trying to do that show and trying to appear happy and chipper. And, you know, people who know me or knew me knew that, you know, I was dealing with something. I wasn't quite what I was years prior when my life was in a much better place. And I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve. And I'm sorry if that offended some people or some people didn't like it, but that's just who I am. I'm not an actor. I know you don't operate that way either. It's a profession, yes. We're on television or on radio. There's a professionalism you must always put forward, no matter what. You can't take your baggage and bring it with you. But at the same time, I'm not going to, you know, pretend everything's perfect and I'm happy and peppy and bursting with love every minute of the day when, you know, that's just, that's just not the fact. But I think some people and some viewers really respected that. And those are the people, I cannot tell you how amazing through social media, and, I, and this is one good thing, I guess, about social media, we often bitch about and complain about it, but I was able to get so much direct feedback from viewers and their feelings and their love and people telling me, there was a woman who was texting me from the hospital, or posting on Facebook from the hospital, her husband was dealing with cancer and she felt so bad that she missed my farewell and how important I was to her and her husband's lives. Every mm. day. And that just, you know, those things just blow me away. I mean, I'm the stupid weather guy every morning. I don't, I don't think of much more than that, but you become a particularly in morning television. And I think morning radio, when you're part of people's routines, you become part of their lives and their family, their extended family. And that was the wonderful part about working that shift. I think, 
the viewers are very loyal. They're very bound to you. They don't, they're not switching around channels because they don't have time to. They're running around getting ready to start their day. And I think that bond and me being able to, and I think I've said this before, you know, somebody passes away, you go to their wake and people at the wake are saying, oh, he was a great guy. She was wonderful. Oh, she did so many amazing things. He was terrific. He did this. But nobody ever told them that for her when they were alive. I sort of had my wake and got to hear the responses, uh, which is an amazing, an amazing thing. And I thank all of the viewers and listeners who, who have still to this day have, have great things to say. And they're so supportive. And that really does mean a lot. I'm not BSing. That really means a lot. To me. It does mean a lot. And uh, <laughs> you're appreciative and they're appreciative of uh, the job that you did for many years. And, and also you are like family when you're on TV every day and people rely on you for critical information, whether it's a newscaster or even a sportscaster, I suppose. Um, you're you're part of the family because some people sit down at, at breakfast and, uh, you know, fry up a couple of eggs, sit at the table and there's Chris or there was Chris, you know, telling him, hey, don't forget to uh, go out and warm up the car because it's going to be really cold today or whatever it was. It's, you know, being, being on the radio, being on TV, uh, it's been a gift. And I think about being a kid growing up in New York and, uh, the idols that I looked up to, not knowing that that's what I wanted to do in my life. You knew early on you wanted to be a weather guy, right? Yeah, actually, I guess the snowstorm, which was known as the Lindsay snowstorm, named after the mayor of New York, John Lindsay, in 1969, February of 1969, uh, would have been all of, what, eight years old, so second grade. Uh, I fell in love with snowstorms and snow, and, and, I, and it just impressed me so much how the city came to a standstill, how that busy street in front of my house became a playground for two, three days and no cars could get through. And I, that's where it started, my love of weather and nature and science and how it all worked. Yeah, so for me, outside of, like I've always said, playing center field for the Mets, that would have been my other dream, but you know, I couldn't <laughs> hit a curveball. Uh, but truly, I got to do what I really dreamed of doing from when I was a child in the city that I grew up in. And I, I can't ask for more than that. I really can't. I don't need a redo. I wouldn't do it any, any way differently other than maybe slow it down a little bit at times in my head. But it, it was an amazing trip. I got to work on the Today Show. I got to meet so many different people from right. artists and musical artists. It was amazing. We've had a really, a really privileged life. Um, and I don't doubt that. And, uh, having just had a major birthday and looking back on my life, thinking about the things that I've been able to, I don't want to say accomplish, but the things I've been able to do um, because I don't want to put a value on it. Like it's accomplishment is, 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 you know, getting a diploma or something like that. But I look back and I am so appreciative of even just doing the show, even just having time where we can sit and we can just talk, which is exactly what we wanted to do when we originally had the idea of doing Middle-Aged Warriors. Yeah, I mean, think about 15, 20 years ago, we would not have been able, if we were in the same position, to be able to have a show like this. You know, podcasts didn't really exist to any great extent. It would be very difficult to get things out. But in today's world, you can still have a voice, which is amazing. I do want to point out for people, if they're not following you on Facebook, it's Rick's, did you post that on Rick Summers, Steinhouse or Rick Summers? 
I'm not even sure. You're 60 year old. Look for Rick Summers on Facebook. And Rick, just as he said, had a milestone birthday. Can I say which one it was? I guess, right? Sure. The, the, the big 6 0. And just you wrote a very poignant, genuine uh, recap of your, of your life. And I think you hit on so many points from, from the things that some people would consider negatives, but how you learn from them and they're positives. I think anybody reading that will walk away examining their own lives differently. Uh, I don't know if you realize how powerful that was. And I think you, you do because you see the amount of comments that people had for that. And it was funny, a few people wrote, I don't usually read these long <laughs> messages to the end, but I kind of kept doing the same thing. I'm like, oh, there's more. Oh, there's more. Oh, there's more. But I insisted on getting to the end. And, and you have, at this point, already lived an amazing life, experienced so many wonderful things. And I think realizing at this point in your life how appreciative you are of them. But let me ask you this. It, I got the sense that in some of those things that you had done, maybe you felt you didn't take the time when you were doing them to really understand and appreciate them the way you are now and reflect. I don't think there's any question that because of the way we're, we're raised and this is no fault of anybody. It's not like I'm in therapy and pointing the finger at my parents, but I was raised to, all right, what am I going to do next and never really be able to uh, spend time uh, basking in the glory or the glow of whatever it was I just achieved. And to be honest with you, sitting and writing that piece, which I titled what I learned in my first 60 years or something along those lines, which I think is funny because it implies there's going to be uh, another 60 years, which <laughs> well, is a little bit unrealistic. But good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> and said, so if this is middle age, I'm going to be 120. No, and I, then what I, are you going to do, Samino? Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, I hope I can hang in there with you. But, um, but you, you know, it's, I have it in front of me now. I'm looking at it. And my first 60 years, I've lived, loved, lost. I've held my mother's hand as she took her last breath of life in a hospital bed. I've made friends and enemies alike. I've failed at marriage and also knocked it out of the park. I've seen man walk on the moon. I've witnessed launches at Cape Kennedy. I've learned the meaning of chronic progressive illness and the value of a pension, a 401k, an IRA. And uh, much like me, financial advice for people who know much more than I do. And to that point, I don't, I don't know how many people, and, and part, if you hear noise in the background, there's a thunderstorm coming through right now. Uh, but oh, I hear it. You know, for me, there is right now. We're not that far away, but uh, you may be getting it next. But anyway, the, the thing I wanted to uh, talk about as you hit 60, you're also, you've been dealt with another challenge that you've been dealing with for quite a few years now. And I don't know how many people, you've kind of dropped little hints and mentioned it from time to time here on the show, but uh, you've been dealing with MS for how many years now? 26. 26. I mean, since I was diagnosed, I don't know how long before that I was dealing with it, but right. I was diagnosed in 1994. That, re that response now about dealing with it, what did you mean in terms of symptomatically or emotionally dealing with it? Symptomatically. I don't think emotionally you deal with it. Uh, until you get older. Hmm. Um, I, think I, I think I was diagnosed and then uh, much like any kind of diagnosis, I think you get it and you go, okay, all right, let me find out what I can and I do all the research. And I think that it takes its toll on you. But uh, I think that 
it took me a while to process it. I'd like to think I deal with it better now. I want to inspire people to try and live and and do full things. They, Valerie will not let me carry the popcorn at the movie theater anymore because <laughs> that's precious cargo. Come on, I know, and that's that, and that's some of the stuff that you have to learn. And um, you know, I had to kind of uh, recuse myself from driving because I don't drive as well as uh, I used to. So she feels better taking the keys. And you know what? From a male standpoint, that was that's my car. You know, I'll drive. I'll, I'll put you in and then I'll get in the driver's seat. And that was a really hard thing for me to have to incorporate in my playing cards. Yeah. But um, what, what impressed me about you the most with this, though, I really do say this honestly, that you've handled this this illness and this process with a grace, if, if I could attach that word grace, but you're, you, you just do. You don't impose it on other people. I'm sure you have days that are not so great, and I mean emotionally not so great. I don't know what the process is like. I'm sure you've gone through some frustration and anger and all of those moments, but you don't really let that bleed out to the people around you. Uh, how do you do that? Is, that? is there a mindset? Is that done purposely or it's just naturally who you are? It's interesting because I think this comes to uh, talking about glass half empty, glass half full. When I was younger, the glass was always half empty. And this is really akin to what you were saying before about we achieve things or we do things and we don't take the time to celebrate them. For me, with the glass always being half empty, it was like, okay, what's next then? What do I have next? And then somewhere along the lines, probably going through 9-11, going through my divorce, going through my mom's death, everything just seemed to pile on. And I realized, you know what? I'm going to be okay. And it's kind of like what you've dealt with for the past few years. You realize, you know what? Life is is pretty okay. And I'm going to be all right. It's not going to be what it was. I can't believe how philosophic I've become as I've gotten older, <laughs> almost existential and to the point where, you know, I don't know that some people buy my, my baggage, but the truth of the matter is life is actually pretty decent and everybody's got something they're going to have to deal with at some point. I told right. you what my father used to say, it's okay. kind of cruel. What kind of sandwich? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He says, hey, Junior, life is a shit sandwich, and every day you take a bite. Uh, and this is from, like, the life of the party. This guy was one of the happier guys in the room. I think in, in moving forward, it really is the key to keep things on the optimistic side. Not always easy. Um, but the other thing that I've discovered that, that's – and I probably learned this – a lot from the woman that's in my life now and it's forgiveness there are people out there that you just have to forgive don't expect apologies from you don't need an apology you don't need them to for to ask for forgiveness we need to just get rid of that weight and just forgive uh, the same way you hope that people are forgiving us for you know we we've made mistakes and you know we both admitted that I've asked for forgiveness, whether you get it or not, I don't know. But I think it's more important to forgive the people you have felt that have wronged you because carrying that around with you, man, I know. talk about a cancer, that's an emotional cancer. It is. And it weighs a lot. It really does. Yeah. I think that's one thing that getting older, I think when you're younger, 
you know, there's, there's this anger, there's this revenge, and there's this wishing them terrible things. And like, what the hell is that really going to get you? Because it doesn't change anything. And, and your life is still within your circle, you know, and you've got to just learn how to deal with you first emotionally, uh, first and foremost. And that's what makes you a better person for the rest of the world as, as you move forward. Of course, when you're younger and you look at the, the lifeline, the timeline, the calendar, you think, I've got a lot of time left to to be angry and carry this grudge and hate people. And, <laughs> and then as you get older, you realize, you know what? It's, it's wasted energy. It really is. Well, it's, you know, all those, those story, you know, the, the deathbed uh, confessionals and the, and the, and the, you know, finally telling somebody, I love you. And you wasted all those years and didn't tell them that the, the reconciliations do not wait. Anybody listening to this and is in that position. Do not wait until somebody's on their deathbed because yeah. then, while it's okay, you could, you know, you can have some closure, do it a lot sooner while there's life and there's plenty of time to be enjoyed and we can make each other feel better and connected better. Wow. Now That's should I it. look at my watch? Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, Write that down. That sounded good. I, yeah, that was actually, that was a, that was a good nugget that you could take with you. So, um, can I throw it back to you and ask you uh, sure. if anybody wants to send us an email or, or reach out to us, do you have any way off the top of your head that you want people to Well, you can, certainly, you can certainly contact me at uh, my email, which is T as in Tom, E-X-W-X, known as Texwex, uh, 1111 at gmail.com. Uh, so it's Texwex, T-E-X-W-X, 11 at gmail.com. Um, and of course you can always drop, uh, on my Facebook page, Chris Semino weather, you can drop over to my website, Chris Semino weather. There's a trend here or my Instagram account. Guess what that's called, Rick? Chris Semino weather. There you go. See you catching on now, but, I am. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, you know, and we would really love to hear from, from you a little feedback. Uh, you know, the numbers are going up. We, we, we track this thing. People are downloading the show and we hope to attract more and more people. Uh, and again, we're not going to bore you with uh, the Rick and Chris show all the time. We're going to have some special guests. And we've had some really good guests so far. I have to. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I'd like to be back in the same room with you again fairly soon. And uh, hopefully we can do that. And, and eventually maybe even have a guest in the same room with us. That may be a little ways off yet, but hopefully we'll get there. Hey, uh, by the way, it looks since we've been talking, baseball is going to start July 23rd, we think. <laughs> what do you think about that? Yeah. I have mixed emotions. I mean, it'll be fun to turn on the TV. It'll be weird to turn on the TV and not see any fans in the stands. Well, the other thing that's weird, I don't know if you've, if you've researched the other night to see what's going on and what they're going to put in place. First of all, they're going to be using the DH on, on you know, National League as well. Uh, if a relief pitcher comes in, he has to face a minimum of three batters. And if it goes into extra innings, I believe in the 10th inning, the first batter, the first team up gets to have a man on second base. Second base, yeah. <laughs> Which that sounds, see, that part's really, now you're changing, majorly changing the complexion of the game because that's a player put in a position that wasn't earned. To say a relief pitch has to face three batters, okay, it'll speed up the game a little bit. But literally putting a man on base with the capability of scoring a run and he never earned that position on base. That's really, to me, changing the complexity of the game. The other thing that was funny was, um, <clears throat> besides no high fives, no hugging, no fist pumping, uh, 
Any manager or player who comes to argue with an umpire has to be, obviously, six feet or, or more away. <laughs> so no more getting in his face. Remember those days? Like, oh, yeah. Literally face-to-face, nose-to-nose arguments with the bobbing heads. <laughs> I guess we're not going to see that for a long time. I don't know. It'll, it'll be strange to see, but everything has been strange to see. It's been yeah. a really weird time. We will get through it. I think it's going to be, you know, still bumpy on the way out of all of this and where there's probably still going to be some backslides. But uh, I don't the thing that I I don't like and I think we need to try to dampen a little. But unfortunately, I think the media helps in creating this elevated feeling of anxiety and panic all the time. And although I think people are starting to burn out from it a little bit, uh, hence we're seeing this this release, but this release of energy that's too strong, too fast, and we're gathering too quickly collectively in in small places. Obviously, that's a no-no. We can see by the spread of the virus. But I just think, let's realize we're going to get through it. Be respectful to the other people around you, whether or not you are a mask wearer and you want to be one. When you go out around other people, that's what you have to do. It's just a respectful thing. Yeah, I, uh, I keep watching things on the news where people walk into stores without wearing masks and then are either asked to leave or, or get into yelling which yeah. there was a woman on, I think I saw it on Inside Edition last night, um, that she, she's screaming about, about her civil rights and that her doctor doesn't want her to wear a mask because she has trouble breathing. Though She didn't seem to have any trouble screaming. <laughs> Hopefully people can discern for themselves a little bit. I mean, that would be a nice thing to actually think for yourselves once in a while. And I think that's part of the problem here too is uh, – a lot of people just want to be led and told what to do and what's you can think for yourself, by the way, you're allowed to take in all the information, think for yourself, but the same way you can't go into a, you know, well, when you could go into a movie theater, you can go into a movie theater, crowd a movie theater and light up a cigar because you want to smoke a cigar during the movie or a cigarette. You don't do it. It was not, you know, so was that infringing on your rights? Some people felt that way as well, but this is a direct known virus that can be spread that can be detrimental to people's health therefore while we're in this phase put the freaking mask on that's it you know uh, just as we were prepping to do our show i was reading an article uh in the atlantic about the danger of a negative um covid19 report because people think they're negative so they're not impacted by the the disease. I'm sorry, I'm just having trouble getting it out. Um, the truth of the matter is they may still be carrying and they may still uh, pass it along, even though they're not infected to the point where it's knocking them down or knocking them out. Um, I think that there are a lot of false positives, false negatives. Right. And there's a, there's a lot of stuff out there that we just don't, don't know. Well, you know, and I, and I put it exactly to that, but this is a virus and viruses will infect millions of people. I saw something the other day saying, well, the CDC is guesstimating the amount of infected people are actually 10 times more, which would put it already over 20 million people, which is realistic. I mean, but that's not horrifying in the sense that, well, if that's the case, then relatively speaking, the majority of people are going to survive this. If you are that vulnerable, and you have pre-existing conditions and the things that this disease can threaten your life or put you in a hospital, you have to hunker down. Uh, but the reality is we should all assume we could potentially get this. We need to start treating our bodies in a way that we're ready for future things like this. 
we're conditioned the best we are. And I was watching somebody speaking the other day about healthcare, and this was in another country, and he said, you are your healthcare system. You, you shouldn't be relying on, let me get sick, and then I'll have a healthcare system that takes care of me. You are your healthcare system first. You need to treat your body like, you know, you're the healthcare system for it. Put good things into it. Get into good shape. Get rested. Don't be overweight. Eat the right foods. Keep your immune system pumped up. That's the first thing we need to do. These things are not going away. Pandemics and viruses, not going away. How we survive them, that's the key. So forget about panicking because there's more to come. <laughs> that's how I feel about something. Do you think media has changed in ways that we could have never anticipated looking at, I'm, I'm talking specifically about television news mm -hmm. where, you, where you've spent your life. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, as far as people, uh, anchors being sequestered and doing the news from their apartments. And uh, do, do you think corporations are gonna look at expenses and say, well, we could just set up a camera in Chris's apartment. We don't really need to build a whole new set. I mean, do you think that these changes are going to eventually become status quo in TV? I don't think the technology is there yet because, I mean, if you've watched some of these things, you'll see sometimes, you know, things hang up, you know, uh, you get a freezing of, of the transmission. Uh, however, I will say, because I've spoken to some people who are writers and producers and been working from home, they don't really need to be in, in a newsroom, which means some of that space and that real estate space that, especially in large markets where you're, uh, God knows how much they pay to have a floor or two uh, to cover their news division, I think you might see a downsizing there or more people working from home. Uh, in terms of the on-air though, I think for the most part, I think they're still going to stick with, with, with studios for now. I mean, I personally feel though the other thing that this pandemic has done is it's elevated that, again, hysteria mode for news. It's, it's always elevated, it's always bad news. I was looking at the New York Times the other day, I get it online and there were maybe 30 to 40 articles on the front page. Every single one of them was slanted negatively, whether it was about COVID, whether it was about Black Lives Matter. There was nothing about, how about, wow, New York City has reached its lowest uh, new cases or, 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 or deaths for the last three days. There was no positive slant. It's this continuous thing. Oh, it's, it's going away now, but it could come back. Oh, it's coming back over here. The numbers are going up there. It's always, it's this fear-inducing thing. And apparently the belief seems to be that's the only way you get people's attention. If you told them something good is happening, yeah, they're not going to bother reading that. I mean, I don't know. Is that true? That's part of something else that's come out of this. But from the logistics that you're talking about, I think there might be some permanent changes, but I don't know yet about, you know, watching Janice Huff out of her kitchen every day. I don't, I don't think, I don't know if you see that. The lighting's a little tricky there. Are you glad to be kind of on the shelf as opposed to having to do this every day? Yeah, I don't, to be perfectly honest, uh, I mean, I mean, I've spoken to a few of my ex-anchors and people I work with. Uh, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. Although, I'll be honest, it's probably you could wake up a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> but um, it, this has got to be a weird thing. I, I don't, I don't really, as I said to you before, I don't really miss it. 
I really don't. I, I was talking to uh, Darlene Rodriguez a while back. She was the she's the anchor on the show uh, today in New York. And I said, I really, I was looking at some pictures and something hit me. It wasn't that I miss being on the show or on camera or doing the weather, but I missed being part of something. I felt like I was part of a team and part of something we were doing every day. And I do sort of miss that. And that's why I like, we have this podcast, we do it once a week. It makes me feel like I'm part of something, but that's kind of the thing I miss. I mean, I don't know how you felt after leaving radio and what, what part did you miss the most about that? Yeah, I think that's really a good point is I missed being on a team. When I was at Light FM in New York, we were a team that was at the top of our game. Um, apparently, their ratings are still probably pretty good. But I loved being a part of a, a top-rated team. And then I went to another radio station that was down in the dredges, and I loved being on a team that was going to climb through the ranks and try and dismantle Light FM from being the number one radio station. And then... When I got let go from there, I finally said, you know what, I'm done with this team stuff. <laughs> but I totally get it. And I think it's a big reason why people are missing sports so much right now is they miss being part of a team, even though they're not playing, they're not going to stadiums. They feel like they're a part of the fabric that supports a team. And I think that that comes across but the point about it all, too, I think, you know, having sports back to an extent, especially now, and we've had this discussion, I think we differ a little bit. I know you're a little more hesitant about things coming back, but I feel like it still would, would be a little bit of a healthy distraction for us from sitting there and watching the tote board of number of cases in which state and how many died, how many recovered, to look at some different numbers, like, you know, who went three for four, uh, whose ERA is under three. I'd like to get back to that for a little while. It, it doesn't really have any great relevance in terms of changing the status of the pandemic, but it does in terms of, I think, the overall spirit of the people in this country. And I have to be honest, to me, that's the, my biggest disappointment. Uh, it saddens me, it hurts me, is that this country was hit with this as other parts of the world were. And you would think typically, if you remember 9-11, we all came together. There were no Democrats, there were no Republicans. We all came together. We were, we were protecting this country and, and being united because I think we forgot that that's the first word in describing the country, United States of America. We are right now the divided States of America in the midst of dealing with something that's very impactful for all of us in really the same way. People are out of work, people are getting sick, people have lost loved ones, and what are we doing we're dividing ourselves, and that's worrisome to me, and it saddens me. It just does. That, that's the part I, that I'm, I'm kind of surprised. I really am. I don't know what you think about that. I used to think of 9-11 as the great equalizer. Um, it changed life in New York City at warp speed. People holding doors, people saying, are you all right? And when the pandemic struck, I got the sense that we would relive some of that but it would be short-lived, and it was, uh, because now I think while everybody initially was wanting to take care of others and, and do the right things, I think now that animal mentality of, that survivalist mentality is now sinking back into our climate. 
and it's just it's heartbreaking. But that's that's a whole other show, I would imagine. Yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll and and I you know this is an evolving thing, and I always I mean as as we're living through it, I can project in my head somewhere a couple of years from now we're going to look back at this. And they're going to say, hey, maybe we should have done this a little different and that a little different. And, you know, I think this was, you know, we, the country and the world was thrown into this. And the way we reacted the first time out is not always the best. It's, it's how you react to a lot of things in life. The first time through, it's a learning experience and you make mistakes. And I think mistakes have been made here. But uh, hopefully we're going to figure it out and everybody will come out on the other side of this and, and, and learn. Or as I like to say to you, remember... If you really think the best part of waking up is folders in your cup, <laughs> it's time to revisit your life. Yeah, it's, uh, it's got to be. You, you better start finding something, some other interests out there. But with that being said, I think we're running out of Zoom time. So uh, what I want to say to everybody out there, thanks for listening in on Chris's and, uh, <laughs> and Rick's couch. Uh, I'll, I'll, this we'll call it the Freudian episode. Okay. Uh, no, but uh, we'll, we'll see. But thanks so much, Rick, for allowing me a little more time to share my story uh, and what this year since being out of work from WNBC has been like. And uh, hopefully you got to share a little bit of, of your first 60 years, but we can talk about more, uh, more of that as we move forward as well. But everybody out there, stay safe, stay healthy, be smart, be respectful, and uh, sunshine always. And leave the fireworks to the professionals. Please. Be good, feel good. We'll talk to you again soon. Rick Summers, Chris Tamino, Middle-Aged Warriors. Thank you. Hey, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, preferably five stars, no begging. Uh, we're available also on your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can find us at Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, and at Believe Podcast. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.